Summer is always a busy time, I know, for families around here. It's also a busy time for this church family. And we've had some exciting things take place this last week. We definitely want to mention the group that just returned from Camilla, Georgia. About 38 went down, our youth group and several adult volunteers. And they led a vacation Bible school based on the life of Joseph. And they started out with about 76 children on Monday and ended up with 162 on Thursday. And so they did a lot of good work reaching out to those children and also leaving them with some follow-up there. I've also been told that this side of our auditorium is experiencing some air conditioning difficulties. And so that's why a lot of people are fanning. I've also been told that if anyone on this side dozes off, it's not entirely my fault. So I'm going to feel a little bit better about that. This side, I don't guess I have any excuse with, but, uh, but that side, we've got some of the doors open and uh, we'll be working on that. And so as, as we spend some time together, let's, let's bear with that and study God's Word. We also have had a tremendous summer faith series, especially this past Wednesday with Tori Treadway doing an outstanding job. I'm looking forward to listening to the recording of that. And uh, we are lucky to have and to be blessed with such talented members among us who can stand up and teach the way that he's done. And Tori's definitely one of our talented members doing that for us. We do want to remind everyone... There will be, uh, following the evening service next Sunday, there will be a report for the disaster relief trips that we have been taking down to the coast. And so we will be seeing some pictures. We'll hear a brief report after our worship time. You won't want to miss that. You'll want to see what's next and what is in the plans and and what we're working on as uh, as we continue our efforts in the coast and relieving some of the areas down there. Uh, It would remind us as we prepare for our Summer Faith Series on this coming Wednesday, that we will have, for the first time this summer, we'll have two different sessions taking place at once. Dr. Rodney Cloud from the Hendersonville Congregation uh, will be here with us. He will be in the auditorium, and he'll be speaking on Bible translations, and he'll be talking about how we have translated the story, and that'll be very interesting. He'll be here for four weeks doing that in the auditorium. We'll also have a session in the fellowship hall, uh, where we will focus on different aspects of the Christian life. Mickey Bell will be here from Lebanon Road Church of Christ, and he'll be talking about what our mission is as Christians. What, what are we supposed to be about? And so that'll be a really informative session. We want to make sure we've got plenty of people in, in both places uh, as, we, as we come together and, and as we worship. We all are familiar with the fact that when we do something wrong in life, we have to face the consequences, don't we? We're familiar with that. We know what it's like to have to face the consequences. I read recently of a teacher that made the news because apparently after-school detention was not being very effective. After-school detention was not really deterring anyone from doing something wrong. So you would have people that wouldn't mind spending an afternoon just sitting around in detention, and that wouldn't keep them from misbehaving during the day. So this teacher decided to change the detention a little bit. And during that time, he would play a CD from one of his favorite recording artists, Frank Sinatra. And so all of these high school students are sitting down, and he turns on Frank Sinatra, and they listen to some of the Frank Sinatra songs. Uh, He said when he was reached for comment that he allowed them to do some things during this detention time. They were allowed to sing along if they wanted to, and uh, none of them apparently did. There was one uh, boy that was interviewed, and his only response was, it was so boring. I thought it would never end. And as we think about consequences, that's a pretty creative way to give someone a consequence for doing something wrong. I bring that up because this evening we're going to be looking at some very serious consequences 
that take place in the life of David. David's life, we've been looking at one warrior in two different battlefields. We saw David face off with Goliath this morning. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the battlefield of the heart. And we're going to see what happens in one of David's most infamous stories. If David versus Goliath is his most favorite, his most uh, famous moment in life, then David and Bathsheba is his most infamous moment. And we're going to be looking at a, a difficult text. Let me just say before we begin that I've been thinking about some of, some of this material. I've been, been praying about it and, and trying to work on just the, the right way for it to come across. We're going to be dealing with some tough questions. And I want you to know from the very beginning that we are all, as always, I will be just as convicted and challenged as anyone else, if not more so, as we ask ourselves some of these tough questions. So as we deal with this text, let's look at some of this together. And hopefully, we'll allow ourselves to really be challenged by this story of David. And I'm going to try to adjust our monitor here so that I can keep up with what we'll be doing. Uh, If not, let's think about a verse that Jesus gives us that really strikes at the heart of the matter. In Luke chapter 6, in verse 45. He tells us that if we have good, good treasure in our hearts, then our mouth will bring forth good. If we have evil treasure of our hearts, evil will come out of us. And so, in other words, everything I say, everything I do, every place I go, every way I act is determined by what's in my heart. I appreciate so much Phil leading those songs that focus on our heart, that focus on on us wanting to be like Christ and be pure. And as we think about David's life at this point, we see the battle that takes place within all of us, the battle for our hearts. What are we going to produce? What's going to come out of our life? I've received several comments on the title of this lesson. As we've, we've had a play on words, as we think about my space in life, if you have not heard on the news for the past few months, the website myspace.com is receiving a lot of press. It's been around for a lot longer than that. But it really provides us, I think, a good entry point for what we're going to discuss this evening. And so it's really a good introduction for us as we think about what's taking place. Uh, For those of you who may not know, it's the fourth most popular English language website. It's the fifth most popular website in the entire world, making roughly $200 million a year. And it's actually inspired a lot of other social networking sites. And so these are sites that you can go on and set up your own page and talk to some other friends. And they're designed that you could catch up with friends you hadn't seen since high school or college. Or that you could communicate with friends and family members. And there are a lot of, of great things that could come about from the idea of a social networking site. But as you've probably seen in the news, there are some negatives as well. And so as we think about what takes place, even on a site like this one, we're reminded that just like any kind of technology we use, we're going to have to use extreme care and extreme caution as we think about what gets put on a site like that one. In fact, it's tempting when you set up your own site to think, this is sort of my area. This is kind of my little page, and I can arrange this just the way I want it. No one else can see this. When, in reality, when we think about setting up a website, everyone can see it. And so it's important for us to remember, just like we wouldn't watch anything that came on television without thinking to ourselves, should a Christian really be watching this? We wouldn't go to any movie without thinking to ourselves, should a Christian really be watching this movie? Uh, We wouldn't read any material without thinking, should a Christian really be reading this? The same rule and principle applies as we think about technology. We have to continually ask ourselves, 
Should a Christian really be involved in in putting this on a site? Because you can post pictures and you can put all kinds of things on there that aren't really what a Christian should be involved in. So you have to ask yourself the question. And it's it's difficult, I know, uh, for for parents. My only encouragement as we think about this introductory remark is that it would be good for you to get with your child, maybe to look at what is on their site. That will not probably make you very popular with your child. Um, suggesting that probably has not made me very popular with your child, but I, I think it's important as we think about what's, what's on the internet, what's on our, our, our pages, what we're producing. We're always wanting to be in the world and not of the world. And so if, even our, our MySpace websites should be in the world but not of the world. They shouldn't read just like everyone else's. They should be different. We should see that we're standing apart, that we're set apart for a specific purpose. But the real reason I thought that phrase was interesting is because we all, no matter what age we are, any human being who's lived has struggled with the temptation to kind of create my space in life. And it doesn't have anything to do with a website, and it doesn't have anything to do with with computers. I mean, this is just one area of temptation that's come along in a a long line of temptations where human beings have tried to set aside a part of their life that this is just for me. It's a temptation as Christians, isn't it? to compartmentalize our lives to where we have our Christian life, but then there's going to be one time of the week, there's one area of my life where I just, I'm just not going to let God have access to that area. That area I'm going to keep for myself. That's going to be sort of my little space. And that's where I'm going to be able to do whatever I want, no questions asked. I won't have to answer to anyone, even God. We can see that temptation when we're tempted to say things like this. Hey, I work hard all day to support my family, so what I do after work on my own time is my business. If I want to go out and have some drinks with the guys at work and stay out and, and, and get drunk, that's my business. Maybe I go to school all week. And what I do on the weekends, if I want to go out and party, that's my business. That's, that's my world. That's my sort of space where I get to do what I want to do. Sometimes you might even think, I've worked hard in the church over the years. I've given my time in ministry activities, and I've worked hard for it. Now it's time for me to do what I want to do, even if I know it's wrong. I mean, after all, it's my life. I should get to enjoy what I want to do. We, we all have that temptation, don't we, that sinks in, that we want to create our own space, that we want to set up a space for ourselves where we cannot answer to anyone else, not even God. And it's interesting when we look at the life of David, because the sin that we see in David and Bathsheba did not just happen in, in an instant. It wasn't just an instantaneous decision that as soon as she walked in the door, then the sin happened. There were a series of small decisions that led up to that sin. And in our own lives, there are a series of choices that we can make that, that can sort of create a space for ourselves and it'll set us up for disaster. And I want us to think about that in the life of David. So as we come to David's life at this point, we are far beyond what we looked at this morning with David and Goliath. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you would be turning there, we're going to see what takes place with David in this situation. And to get a snapshot of David up until this point, we've got to realize that he's already escaped death at the hands of Saul. He's lived for a time period with the Philistines. You remember Goliath was a Philistine. So it's interesting that David goes for a time in his life. He lives there. He's formed his band of mighty men, his soldiers that fight for him and with him. And he's their leader. And so he comes to a point in his life where he's been ruling approximately 20 years and he would be about 50 years old. That would give us a good mental picture of where David is in his life right now. And it's interesting to see that the sin that takes place in David's life is not something that occurs in an instant, but it's something 
that occurs as a result of several different decisions. One of the ways we see that evidence is because David at this point in his life has already multiplied for himself a great number of wives. In fact, 2 Samuel 5 and 13 tells us that he multiplied wives and concubines for himself. Now that's interesting. I want us to hold that in our minds because when we look all the way back in the Old Testament and the beginning of the Old Testament to Deuteronomy, we see Moses standing before the people of Israel and he is reciting the law to him. And notice the prediction that God makes and the prophecy that Moses gives the people. He says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. Now, where have we heard that before? We heard that just this morning when we talked about Saul. As Saul was chosen, he was chosen because they wanted a king just like all the other nations. God predicted that before the judges were even reigning over Israel. God predicted that before they'd entered the promised land. And he said, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And look at verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. It's interesting to compare this prophecy with the lives of David and even his son, the life of Solomon. And to see where the Lord years and years earlier had predicted that if you multiply wives for yourself as a king and if you gather up gold and silver for yourself and later on Moses would even say if you try to get a great number of horses and cattle for yourself, you're making a mistake. And so David already has made in this series of small choices... He's made one choice that goes against the prediction that God made. He's, he's acquired more wives and more concubines for himself. And it's interesting to see what happens in, in beginning in the first verse of chapter 11. If you would please read with me. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now in the first verse, we have another little decision that David has made. David's made a decision in a time of year when kings normally go out to battle, he's made the decision to remain in Jerusalem. It's significant enough that the writer shows us in the very first verse, this was the time of year when the warriors were out at battle. And David was one of the greatest warrior kings that we'll read about. He'd made his name in battle. You remember them singing songs about how many that he had killed compared with how many Saul had killed. And so David comes to this point in his life, it's a time when kings usually go out to battle and for whatever reason... Maybe it was because they already had the battle well in hand. Maybe it was because Rabbah was located fairly close to David's palace. Maybe it was because they didn't think it was worth the risk. But David is here. So he's already, rather than being out at war where the other kings are at this time of year, he's here. And then in verse 2, it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. So here we have, not only is David home in a time when kings are usually out to war, but now he can't sleep at night, and so he's walking around. And he's, lo- he's looking for something. As he, as he walks out on, on the palace, he could have been looking over Israel. He could have been thinking about the blessings God had given him up to that point. But as we think about David at this point in the night, he has put himself in an area where he would be easily tempted. Late at night, he's walking around. It could be comparable to us when we decide that it's late at night, no one else is around, and We're just going to hop on the computer and just start surfing the internet and see what sites we can come up with. Maybe we'll we'll flip through some of the the movie channels and TV. We know what's on at this time of night, but we'll just flip through and see what we can see. Maybe David, he has sort of an, an idleness that he's just trying to relieve some boredom. And he walks around on the rooftop. And then in in the end of verse 2, from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. 
So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It would have been one thing for David to have been standing on the roof and to have noticed Bathsheba. But not only did he notice her, he inquired. He sent and inquired about the woman. And so we see these series of decisions. It started when David started to let his guard down and take some wives and concubines to him that he shouldn't have. Then it started when he stayed at home and rather than going out to battle with the other kings that were out at battle in the spring. And then it started when he got out of bed and he was bored and he was walking around. And then it started as he saw a beautiful woman he sent and inquired about her. And so he's giving Satan a foothold here. And then we see in verse 4 the answer uh, that comes back to him. After David finds out who she is, David sent messengers and took her. And then she came to him and lay with her. And then she returned to her house at the end of verse 4. And the woman conceived in verse 5 and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And so here we have a situation where the decision for, for David to sin was made as a series of smaller choices that set himself up for temptation. I wonder if we don't struggle with that same fact ourselves. I wonder if we don't struggle with that same challenge, making a series of small choices that can set us up for a grueling temptation from Satan. As we think about the battlefield of the heart, I want us to look at a few truths of the battlefield this evening and just take these with us, and hopefully these will help us as we try to work on those spiritual giants in our lives. Number one, my sins cannot be hidden. My sins cannot be hidden. Let's read on once we see what happens. She sends David a message in verse 5 that says, I am with child. That was all she sent. That's all David needed to know. David knew why he was receiving that message. And so David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Verse 10, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And look at what Uriah says to David in verse 11. He says, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You see, David's sins could not be hidden. His secrecy could not hide his sin. And so as he tries to bring Uriah back and he has this plan where he's sort of going to cover up what's taken place, Uriah doesn't work along with that plan because look at what Uriah is concerned about in verse 11. He's concerned about the ark, Israel, and Judah. That had been what David was so concerned about earlier, wasn't it? Remember, David was the one who wanted to build a house for the ark because the ark was dwelling in a tent. And so we see Uriah is focused on these things that are good, and David is only thinking, how can I cover this up? His secrecy could not hide his sins. It's interesting as we, as we think about this period in the life of David to see what the psalmist uh, wrote as we see a psalm of David in Psalms 139. And if you want to flip over there, I want to read a few verses as we think about God and His presence in our lives. David would say in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirits? Or where can I flee from your presence? For if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day, and the darkness and the light 
are both alike to you. It doesn't matter how dark it was outside or how dark it was in David's palace. God saw what had taken place. His secrecy could not hide his sin. And so as David continues to cover up, we see the circumstances. They continue to roll over one on another. And all of a sudden, David starts to add up the cost of this sin. And we see what it's going to cost him. His secrecy cannot cover it. And then as he talks to Uriah in verse 12, he tells Uriah to wait here until today also. And tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then when David called him, he tried to get him drunk and make him sort of play into his hands again. Uriah doesn't do it. So finally he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with orders that Joab is to put Uriah on the front lines and then to draw back and let Uriah be killed. Isn't it interesting? David's secrecy could not hide his sins, and now one sin is adding on top of another. And that's what happens when we allow ourselves to make these choices that set ourselves up for failure. Chances are, if we try to cover up our sin, we're just going to add on one sin on top of another. His secrecy could not cover up his sins. Interestingly enough, his reputation could not cover up his sins. David's reputation did not exempt him from being tempted. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. At this point in his life, David was quite a warrior. He had been blessed by God. Everyone knew that God's hand was with him. Everything that David touched, it seemed, turned to gold. All the battles he faced, he won. And at this point in his life, it would seem like David was impervious to any kind of temptation. But Satan is more consistent with that. Sure, David might have beaten Goliath, but Satan had another temptation he was going to throw at him. Satan is persistent, doesn't give up, no matter how good our reputation is. It doesn't matter how long we've been Christians. We are going to be tempted. It doesn't matter how much God has blessed us. If we're not careful, we can fall into temptation. It doesn't matter if our entire family was brought up in the church. It doesn't matter who we're related to. It doesn't matter what positions we've held or what ministries we've worked worked in. We can be tempted just as anyone else can. And David shows us this. A mighty king after God's own heart. And Satan was still after him. Still looking for a foothold. Looking for a place where he could throw a temptation David's way. And we see David deal with a spiritual giant like we talked about this morning. Our secrecy can't cover it up. Our reputation doesn't exempt us from being tempted. And true friends also will not cover up our sins. You see, later on in chapter 12, Nathan, who is a friend to David, sort of took Samuel's place and giving the word of God to David. He's going to come to him and based on the word of God, he's not going to cover up his sins. I would imagine at this point in his life, David had several yes men. People who said yes to whatever he wanted to do. I would imagine there were several even in the palace who knew what had taken place. And yet Nathan was a true friend. He was not going to cover up his sins. One of the most difficult tasks for us to do as friends is to help others see what they could be. Maybe see if they need to be restored. Maybe see if there's a direction in life that they just need to turn around and they need to go a different way. When Paul would write to the Galatians, he would say in Galatians 6 and verse 1 that those who are spiritual should restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. It's a task of someone who's spiritually mature to restore someone in gentleness. So our sins cannot be hidden. And what's interesting, as this plays out, my sins have consequences. Because Uriah does go to the front lines of the battle. And Uriah is killed. And when a messenger comes down to David, Joab talks to that messenger and he says, Now if David is upset with what's taking place, if he's upset with the battle strategy, you just tell him Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And we see that play out in the rest of the chapter. In fact, when God tells Nathan what would occur because of David's uh, sin, I want us to think about these consequences. He he gives us here in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. 
When Nathan says to David, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. And why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Therefore, now notice these consequences that David is going to face. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. Number two, I will take wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor or your companion, as some translations render it. Number three, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of son, in the sight of this, of this son. For this, you did it secretly, but I will do these things before all Israel. And then later on, David finds out fourthly that the child that he and Bathsheba had conceived would die. So you have these four different consequences. And we see it played out as we think about what takes place in David's life. Well, we see that the sword doesn't depart from his house. In fact, just the next chapter, we have a terrible incident in which uh, Amnon, the half-brother of Tamar, both because David had multiple wives, both the children of David, that Amnon rapes Tamar and then Absalom gets revenge on Amnon by killing him. We see later on that Absalom would come back, rise up against David. Remember prophecy number two, adversity within your own house. He'd rise up against David to try to take the kingdom away. And as part of that, he would fulfill prophecy number three where he would, on the same roof where David had stood and looked at Bathsheba, he would set up a tent and he would lie with David's concubines, as we see in front of all Israel. And we know, based on the rest of this chapter, that the fourth prophecy God made was also true, that the child David and Bathsheba had conceived would die. This is a serious point for us to remember. God took David's guilt away, but David still had to deal with the consequences of his sin. There are... A lot of sins we can commit that have serious consequences. We can be forgiven of our sins, but sometimes those consequences will still remain. And that should really challenge us when we think about the life we live, when we think about temptations we face. You see, God took His guilt away, but the consequences still remained. Even when we're forgiven, we're going to have to deal with what's left over after we've sinned. Even though we've been forgiven by the blood of Christ and we've been guaranteed an eternal home in heaven, there might be some consequences on earth that we have to deal with. See, we found out my sin cannot be hidden, and my sins have consequences. And very quickly, as I know that several are fanning, and it's hot, and it's sweaty, let's very quickly move through the rest of this lesson and come down to the third truth, and that is my sin affects others. It's easy for us to think when we create our own space, when I have my space where I can do whatever I want, I don't have to answer to anyone. It's easy to think that anything I do on my time uh, affects only me. But our sins affect far more than just ourselves. Think for just a moment about all the people affected by David's sin. Number one, obviously, David's sin cost Uriah his life. And before we forget it, remember Uriah was one of David's mighty men. These are the men that fought by David's side through thick and thin. They were there when things were terrible for David. They were there when things were great for David. And he repays Uriah by taking his life. It also cost Bathsheba a husband and a child. And so you have here two lives that are lost as a result of David's sin. And then I want us to think of all the other lives that were affected. Imagine all the other soldiers that are fighting with Uriah, maybe on the front lines. If David hadn't sent those orders, maybe Joab would have had a different plan of attack. There may be soldiers that died needlessly. And later on, as we look at David's house, as we see the sword rising up, as we see Absalom turning on him, and we see all sorts of battling that takes place... All sorts of lives were affected for years and years to come because of something that David did that one night 
When he'd stayed home instead of going out to war, he'd already taken a lot of wives for himself, and he was just trying to relieve his boredom by taking a walk in the roof. My sins affect other people. I am fooling myself if I think that my sin affects only me. I'm fooling myself if I think a sinful habit in my life isn't affecting my family. If, if I have an addiction I'm, I'm dealing with, it is affecting my family members. If I'm looking at things online that I shouldn't, it's affecting my spouse. If I'm struggling with an anger problem, it's affecting my children. The sins that we have in our lives are going to affect other people. And as we think about the temptations David faced, as we think about the consequences he faced, that should make it even more real for us. When we fight those spiritual giants like we talked about this morning, we see the stakes are very high. Because my sins can't be hidden. My sins have serious consequences. And my sins affect other people. Now before we end our lesson here tonight, I want us to see why the fact that we can never hide from God is a good thing. You see, sometimes we think about the fact we can never get away from God. I can never hide from your presence, as David would write in Psalms 139. We think of that as a negative thing, that God's always watching us. But think of all of the positive aspects of that fact. The gospel, after all, is good news. We have no shortcomings that will surprise God. Paul would write in Romans 5.8 that Jesus came and died for us while we were yet sinners. There is no shortcoming in my life that God doesn't know about that's going to surprise him. I might be worried about telling my family members about a problem I have, but God knows. I might be concerned about telling someone in, in my circle of friends about what I've been struggling with, but God knows. You see, he sent Jesus even while we were still sinners, giving us the opportunity for forgiveness. We also don't have any problems that are too big or too small for God. Peter would write in 1 Peter 5 and 7 that we should cast all our cares on him, for he cares for us. So it doesn't matter what my problem is. My problem doesn't have to be as serious as someone else's, or it doesn't have to be as, as easy to deal with as someone else's for me to bring it before God. All across the spectrum, whatever I'm dealing with, I can bring before the Lord. I won't have shortcomings that surprise Him. I won't have problems too big or too small for Him. And I will not have sin in my life that can't be forgiven. Unless I make the decision not to do what God requires of me, my sins can be forgiven. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 would say that God is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins. Now, implicit in that is the fact that I'm going to turn to God, that I'm going to obey Him, that I'm going to give Him my life, that I'm going to give Him my heart, as we sang about earlier, that I'm going to give Him my all. As we think about David and Bathsheba, as we think about the temptation we all face to create our own space in life, where we can do whatever we want to, I want us to leave here realizing that all of our lives, all of our lives is an open book in God's sight. God can see everything that's taking place in our lives. He can see everything that's happening. Even if we try to compartmentalize ourselves and hide it, and I'm going to do this when no one from church is around, or I'm going to do this when no one in my family can see me, God knows what we're going through. God knows what we're struggling with. And we should understand the seriousness of our sin. We should also understand the serious power of God's forgiveness. So we're asking ourselves that question that Jesus posed in Luke 6, 45. Throughout the entire Bible, God is asking for our entire hearts. We've sung about giving our entire hearts to God. So our task tonight is to decide, am I giving all of myself, all of my heart to God? Or am I trying to keep a little space over here where I can do what I want? Am I opening my entire self up to God's service? Or am I trying to keep part of my life secret, hidden from God? We know that when we give our entire selves to God, when we obey His will, when we put Him on in baptism, when we start living that life that's totally and completely dedicated to Him, He will be with us when we face those temptations Satan will throw our way. And as long as we're making a series of decisions that glorifies God, 
God will be able to carry us through those times of temptation and through this life and on to the next life greater than we can even imagine. If you're here this evening and want to make the decision to give your entire self to God, we're going to have a wonderful opportunity to offer the Lord's invitation. Not an invitation anyone here could come up with or could offer based on who we are or who this church is, but based on who God is. He's given us the opportunity to give our all to Him. Will you give your entire heart to God as we stand?